Tech Bridge World with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hi and welcome to the latest episode of the Robots Podcast. My name is Jana and today's episode is focused on a project that seeks to use technology to help underserved communities. M. Bernadine Diaz is an Associate Research Professor at the Robotics Institute at Carnegie Mellon University. Her main work focuses on field robotics that are culturally appropriate and accessible, particularly to underserved communities. To help with these efforts, she founded the TechBridge World, an organization that enables technology research relevant to and in partnership with underserved communities worldwide. Our interviewer Audro spoke to Dr. Diaz about her work and one of her latest ventures, a device that helps the blind learn how to write. Hi, can you introduce yourself? Sure. Hi. Um, I'm Bernadine Dias. I am a, an associate research professor at Carnegie Mellon University in the Robotics Institute. Um, and I run a research lab, which I founded there, called TechBridge World. Mm-hmm. So can you tell me the goal and motivation behind your work? Yes, absolutely. So our goal is to essentially rethink what technology can do for the parts of the world or the communities around the world that aren't currently served by technology. And primarily, the communities we are talking about are communities in the developing world and communities with disabilities. Um, I grew up in Sri Lanka. I was born and raised there um, in a low to middle income family and um, really was very lucky to get the chance to fly to the U.S. and and, uh, get an education in technology. It's where I learned anything about technology was at uh, college. So it's been an interesting trajectory for me and I've always been interested in understanding uh, technology and becoming an expert in it so that I can actually change technology to fit communities rather than forcing communities to change to fit technology. So so that's basically our strategy and our motivation. I feel like um, in robotics, which is a very exciting field, as uh, I'm sure you would agree, there there are a lot of really exciting things happening, but most of what was happening about 10 years ago when we started this endeavor uh, was really benefiting only about 2 billion people if we are generous in the world. And, and as you know, there are many, many more, so that's not even half the global population. So we are really trying to understand how we can change technology in ways that are accessible, relevant, and affordable to the rest of the world. And that's what we do in our lab. Mm. Can you give me an example of these kind of projects? How are you fitting technology to a people? Absolutely. So we start by talking to people about their community, about their vision, um, what their hopes are, what their dreams are, and what uh, is preventing them from getting there. We don't ever want to go into a community and tell them how they should live their lives. What we bring in is our technology expertise. We rely on them for everything else. So a good example is um, in 2006, we were introduced through a series of friends or connections, I suppose, uh, to a small school for blind children in India. 
And this school is pretty amazing. It's a it's a private school um, run by uh, this amazing lady named Miss Mukta, who um, herself had a disability due to her injury. And in her rehabilitation process, so she was a lawyer, she still is, I suppose, um, she met a lot of people who were blind and realized how difficult their lives are. Um, and so she started a school <laughs> and decided that it was really important to help these kids who are blind have um, a better education and access to a better life after that. So she basically raises funds through uh, donations and then she goes out to um, poor areas in um, around Bangalore and she so it's slums and other kinds of uh, places where these kids really wouldn't be able to afford any sort of education. And it's a residential school. She brings them in um, with, of course, their parents' consent, and and they live there and they learn everything from life skills, you know, health, hygiene, navigation, um, all the way through education. And she gets them through as far as they can get in their education system, and it's really amazing. So a lot of the teachers there are also blind. And we started talking to them about what they do and we were very impressed about all the things they've accomplished. And um, we were looking for what ways we might be able to play a role. Um, so those initial conversations were really sort of tell us more about your school. So they got a local volunteer to come in and get video of the classes because this was all remote and they would send that back to us. Um, so one of the key things we identified was the students struggle a lot to write Braille, to learn how to write Braille. And Braille is the only way blind people can be truly literate. Um, and in the developing world, it's especially important that they're literate because they don't really have access to Braille books and, uh, or audiobooks for that matter or anything as in terms of educational resources. So how things work is you learn to write Braille in first grade, and then as you progress, um, basically the teacher is telling you things. You're taking down notes in Braille, and then you study your notes and you take exams, and that's how you pass out of uh, the different grades in school. So if you don't learn how to write Braille and read Braille, then basically you don't get an education. So it's a, it's a pretty huge um, issue. And to make things worse in the developing world, the way they write Braille is using what we call a slate and stylus. So a slate, you can imagine, is basically a plastic pocket. Um, and you can insert a sheet of paper into this plastic pocket. And on one side, there are cutouts of little um, cells basically that are rectangular and and on the bottom there are indentations of dots so braille is basically a tactile way of reading so they're embossed dots on paper and they they come in patterns of six dots at a time so three rows two columns okay and which the basically the configuration of dots that are embossed tells translates into uh, a mapping into either a character or a contraction of several characters, depending on which grade of Braille you're writing or reading. So basically what you do is you, you insert the sheet of paper, you take a regular stylus, and you push down on the dots that you want to emboss in each cell. And then you slide the paper out, and you flip it over, and you read. Now, because you have to flip the paper over, because you're pushing down, um, you have to write the mirror image of what you read. So if you read from left to right, then you're writing from right to left. 
and you're writing the mirror image. So essentially you're learning three alphabets. You're learning whatever alphabet it is, a you know, English, Kannada uh, is what they learn in this uh, school, but they also learn English or Hindi or Arabic or whatever it is. Um, and then you're learning the red version, which is typically a direct character map um, translation from each character has a certain dot pattern. And then you're learning the mirror image of that for writing that. Um, so for a little kid in first grade, <laughs> this is a pretty stunning endeavor to undertake, and they don't really understand why it's important. So a lot of them don't end up being literate. Um, so we looked at this problem, and we realized there were a lot of things we could do with technology. And we had to think very carefully about what exactly would be a tool that would be helpful. So one option would have been you know, eliminate Braille altogether. <laughs> you, you come up with audio recorders or some form of audio systems so that they can um, not need to learn to write Braille. But this is not sustainable. They, they, when they leave the school, they're, not, they're ever going to be able, able to afford something like this for a long time, maybe decades. Um, so then the next system is to eliminate that mirror image, right? So you could create a tool which happens in the developed world um, be, you can have digital brailers that basically you can write the same as you read, um, and it does the flip for you, essentially. Uh, or you have braille typewriters, six keys, essentially, that you type. Um, but even this technology, you can't compete with the price point of a plastic sleeve. So what we decided was the most appropriate um, and sustainable solution was to build a, an electronic tutor that helped make learning to write Braille using the slate and stylus more fun and effective. Um, so we call it our Braille Writing Tutor, and we've done now, I think we're on our fourth version, um, which we've been iteratively developing with this school um, and also other schools now around the world. And it basically, so you can imagine as the child writes um, Braille using essentially an electronic slate, uh, it speaks back to it, the child and it gives feedback and we've incorporated games and curriculum to make it more fun and interesting. Um, and so that's what, one what, example. Yeah. What does the device look like? What does the device look like? Um, well, there are a few different versions, but essentially it looks like... Uh, what, what? <laughs> it looks like a box, and on the box, um, in the base, most basic form, there are these six big buttons. So that's for the youngest children who haven't this, the fine motor skills, and they can just start by learning the configuration of the braille cells and, um, and the the dot numbering and the patterns. Um, then the next set up, you have kind of three of these large braille cells, but they get smaller now. There. So you're trying to scaffold their learning and their motor skills. And underneath that, you get um, two rows of these six dot holes, as, um, or six hole um, yeah, dot system. So it's still this kind of rectangular box where you have some buttons and then some holes that you can press the stylus in that will connect a circuit. Um, and then the advanced version is just essentially like a slate. So it's... Um, a box with a lot of holes in the six dot configuration and the goal there is to get them to entirely just use the slate and stylus and then they would move on to the actual slate. Yeah. 
Can you talk a bit about the development process of working with the community to create these devices? Absolutely. Um, so our methodology is we spend whatever time it takes uh, to, to really understand each other. Um, it's not just about learning from them, but they learn from us as well, who we are and our process, and that takes time. <laughs> um, and when we come to a point where we think both parties or sometimes it's multiple parties are in agreement on something worth trying, um, then we do some sort of either paper prototype or a sketch or depending on who the community is, different things work. So if they're literate, we can write stuff. If they're not, then um, we try to do things diagrammatically. Uh, if they're blind, then sometimes there's braille involved. Um, so it really depends, or we will build something physical with paper or cardboard that they can feel. Um, and we, we start with this sort of initial prototyping stage so that we can get their feedback early. And this is really important because if you give them something to advance, in some cultures they won't say anything negative about it. They feel like you already did this pretty amazing thing and you, they don't want to be negative at all. They want to be polite. It's... it's People so, are really nice. Here. So they won't give you honest feedback. They won't give me honest on the feedback. Device, exactly. Um, so the more rugged or initial that it looks like, uh, or prototypish that it looks like, the more they are willing to say, "Oh, wouldn't it be nice to add this?" Or this part probably won't work so well. And that whole conversation, that iterative process of designing with the community is also good for us because it ends up building more trust and it gives that joint ownership of the project. Um, and then when we feel like we're at a point where it's worth going for a more um, complete prototype, then we go for that, whatever it is. It could be software, it could be hardware, it could be both. Um, and then we run kind of field tests and then we iterate and so on and so forth. So in some places, you know, that can happen really fast. Uh, in others, it takes years. <laughs> and you just have to kind of go with the flow of what is best for that community because you're taking people's time and energy, including yours, um, and it, it needs to fit everybody's lifestyle and, you know, whatever they're investing in the project. Now, you mentioned working with the School India the, uh, with many blind children that you were often remote. Uh, what right. challenges are there? Oh, gosh, everything. <laughs> um, so India is actually somewhat one of our easier uh, communities to work with because even though they're on the other side of the world, they generally have phone connections, they have access to a power grid, um, you know, they have internet sometimes, <laughs> and so we could Skype call, we could call on a cell phone, they can send us things like a video, um, we've helped them build their website, these kinds of things uh, are possible, and, and it's been nice to see their view of technology expand. Some of our other communities are really difficult, I mean... Um, for example, we worked with a small school for the blind in uh, Mongu, Zambia, and that community just didn't have any of the infrastructure. Um, even to call the school, you have to call the private cell phone of the 
principal or the headmaster of the school, uh, which, you know, that will change over time. And so um, things like that, uh, you know, places like that, you have to kind of find a third party that can have a contact on the ground who can contact the school. And so you won't get as frequent updates. Um, um, and, and so I, I think the biggest challenge is finding communication channels that work reliably and over time. Uh, and sometimes you won't ever hear back um, until you get a chance to visit again, and that's okay with us too. Um, so when we're on the ground, we try to do the best we can to not only create a technology of impact, but to also create uh, an ecosystem where we'll try and get volunteers from the community who have some sort of technical background. We'll train them in how to maintain whatever technology we've uh, created. We try to build partnerships among different groups on the ground that might be beneficial to sustaining whatever technology solution and then we hand it over to the community and we leave um, and that's been fine too yeah so some communities we have uh, more interactions and others less um, sometimes language barriers are big problems so unless you have a translator you have no idea <laughs> uh, but that's okay too so you've mentioned devices for the blind mm-hmm. what other devices and communities do you develop for sure um, so we've Primarily focused on education just because, uh, well, for two reasons, actually. Uh, one is we, the first two years that we started our group, I, I basically took two years to just talk to communities around the world, anyone who would talk to us, um, whether it was remote or in person, and, and we were talking to them about what they really wanted, you know, and not from technology, but just in, in life. And the two biggest requests were for health and education. So they wanted basically to be empowered to be healthy and know enough to solve their own problems, to do their own thing, to earn their own living. Um, so of the two, we are definitely more qualified to do education-related things, so that's where we started, and that's been our primary focus. That said, we've done a few other things, depending on what comes up. Um, but, for example, another popular project of ours is uh, looking at English literacy, and a lot of communities want to improve their English literacy for job reasons. And so we've been looking at model, a model where you have teachers who want to improve their skills, who sometimes haven't been trained very well, who don't have access to um, a lot of technology, who actually often are working so many shifts and are so busy that they really don't have time to do a lot of extra things. And then we have students who we've worked with a wide range all the way from primary school students to adult learners, migrant workers in Doha, for example, refugees in Pittsburgh, uh, who have very different motivations, you know, for learning the English and what kinds of English they want to learn. So it's sort of functional literacy versus educational literacy. Um, To children with special needs, uh, we work with deaf school, for example. There are interesting complications when the grammar structure of English is very different from American Sign Language, and so there's a huge problem when uh, students know sign language, they kind of don't mesh well with the grammar structure in English, and so they are usually uh, much farther behind than um, the hearing students. 
And so it's kind of a wide range. And so we were looking at ways in which we can motivate students and teachers um, and give them tools to work together. And one of the concepts that's very exciting, of course, is games. So we were looking at this sort of triangle of uh, people. So there are the developers, the game developers, who what they want to do is build games that are cool. They don't really want to do all of the other stuff. Then you have teachers who kind of have their way of teaching and they want to teach what they want to teach. And then you have students who kind of have to do homework but don't really want to and they want to play games. So we thought we'd put all these three together and um, in a nutshell what we created was a framework where um, you can basically do your homework while playing a game. So we have a set of games where uh, the teacher can upload his or her exercises, exams, whatever you want to call them, so they can be timed or not, they can have hints or not, they can be scaffolded uh, in different ways. And the game developers only have to follow uh, a few different rules in terms of how to embed um, educational content in their games. So they can decide, for example, you will do quizzes or exercises to get more lives or to get extra tools to, I don't know, get through your adventure game or uh, every five seconds or, I don't know, whatever it is, to get to a new stage. So it's kind of up to them. Uh, but we can, you know, have certain gradations and say, oh, if, if it's a quiz, then it has to happen so often or whatever. Um, and then the students get to basically come in and say, okay, I have to do my homework today. I want to play I don't know, the dragon game or the adventure game or this role-playing game. And so they pick their exercise and their game, and then while they play the game, they have to do their homework or they have to do their uh, quiz. And um, it's been really successful. So everybody kind of gets to do what they're best at. And the teachers like it because they don't have to do extra work. They don't have to change the format of what they do. Um, the students like it because they get to play games. <laughs> and the gamers like it because there's a social um, component to what they do then. And, and so that's another project that has, we have more requests than we can field for it. Um, and we're at the stage where we have a pretty good prototype and are doing um, field, start, field tests around the world, so yeah. I see. And so working with these communities to develop these various things, what kind of lessons have you learned? Oh, so many. <laughs> um, I think the biggest lesson that I have learned is how incredibly resourceful people are. Um, I think we, we travel the world and we work with communities where I just cannot imagine what I would have done in that situation. And they come up with very brilliant ways to do things. Uh, so, for example, I mean, I, we work with some people who are both deaf and blind, the, the deaf-blind community. And, and I cannot even imagine. I mean, I'm, I have two kids. My, my daughter is one year old and my son is four. And, and I'm trying to teach my son, you know, to read and write. And, and my daughter, who is one, you know, is learning when I point to things and say, this is a bottle or this is the TV and, and she's learning that correlation and I'm thinking oh my gosh if my child was both blind and deaf how do I even do that and it's just 
incredible to me how people find ways. And and so we, I think the biggest lesson for technologists is that you have to be open to learning. It's not that you have all the answers or you're the expert in anything other than the technology. And if you go with that mind frame into a, a situation, I think you end up building much more... Um, impactful solutions and you end up having a much richer experience because of it rather than getting frustrated by not having a data connection or a power failure or whatever it is that comes your way. Um, I think the second lesson is just learning to roll with the punches. You you cannot plan everything. You have to plan a lot. There are, There's a lot of logistical planning that goes on, especially in the field tests. But um, you know, you kind of have to be prepared to to adapt at any uh, given time. And I would say the third most important lesson is um, diverse teams. So getting people with different backgrounds who can come up with very creative solutions given whatever conditions get thrown your way uh, has really been very helpful. So those are the, the top three, and I could talk about lessons for for years <laughs> but uh, but it's incredibly rewarding work uh, I mean there's never a problem recruiting people to work on these projects uh, people find them incredibly motivating the difficulty we mostly handle in terms of logistics and you know creating the partnerships the stuff that most people find very difficult to do uh, so given that the opportunity that people are very excited to work on these projects and I, everyone is touched by the project you know you have stories to tell your grandkids for a lifetime <laughs> yeah absolutely now so how would someone get involved in helping these communities um well it really depends on your context right so if they were at Carnegie Mellon they would just come talk to me <laughs> and we'd find a way um but more and more universities so what about uh so another person in university not at Carnegie Mellon mm-hmm. um perhaps in their bachelor's or beginning graduate studies how would they get involved yeah i mean that's a great question one of the things you asked about lessons learned but uh, one of the uh, the flip side to that is the challenges right that that continue to rise is finances are the biggest problem i mean people in the us cost a lot of money <laughs> people in europe cost a lot of money uh, people in Australia cost a lot of money compared to, you know, someone who is in one of the developing communities. So just paying for people's time, that travel, the logistics involved, um, that all costs money, and not a lot of people fund this work. Not a lot of institutions and organizations fund this work. So it all comes down to funding, essentially, at the end of the day, um, We've tried to provide uh, internship opportunities where we can, so we have had people come in and work with us from other universities, um, but they're much more limited opportunities. What we've also tried to do is um, mentor others who are interested in starting similar efforts in their own universities, so we've certainly helped a lot in, in uh, answering questions about how we set things up, you know, uh, sometimes students will do it through student groups, we've also connected them to other organizations in the area that we might know about, that they might not, where they could get a similar experience. Um, we also help make connections with partners, so sometimes we'll get requests from partners in the developing world who 
you know, we are not the right people, we don't have the right technical expertise for whatever they want, and then we'll try and connect them to someone else who we know has an interest. And so we've tried to do that sort of networking as well. And that's the best we can do right now. Um, what's nice is over the 10 years that we've been doing this, more and more groups have been uh, starting to do this work. And not only universities, but now companies as well, startups that have grown uh, and are now taking interns and are hiring people. So so that's been exciting. Um, and that's probably something we'll compile through our website now. More and more people are asking for that information. What about uh, for other professors at universities? Mm-hmm. We hear of this uh, publisher-perish kind right. of paradigm. How can they get involved in doing this kind of work if it it may not mean publishing as frequently. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's less about not publishing as frequently, but not being able to publish in the venues that are considered esteemed. <laughs> um, because you can you can publish. There's a lot of lessons learned, and there are a lot of things that come out of it, but it's about what people expect and what's traditionally viewed as um, great or not. Um, so there are two methodologies for this. Uh, one is to that we need as an academic community to create more venues for people who do this work, to value that and to create venues for them to publish where there is this community that understands that work can meaningfully review that work and you know contribute to tenure cases and such. Um, so we've been trying to do that through a, a community called ICTD, so that's Information Communication Technology for Development. Um, and it brings together social scientists, technologists, um, and humanitarian workers, I suppose, all together and trying to um, get them to to have discourse together and, and to publish in uh, joint ven- venues. We found that the social sciences were much more amenable to this and, and you know their cases were going through a lot more easier than the technology cases. So there was an ACM Dev conference then that started, I believe, in 2010 uh, was the first conference. And that's sort of an offshoot of ICTD is how it started, and now it's kind of become a conference on its own, where it's purely the technology side of that. But still, all the people who come to that conference are working in this space, so they can um, give more technical feedback. Um, So that's starting, and I think I'm hoping that will continue to grow. Um, And then the other side of it is, in the meanwhile, people still have to figure out their lives until this all gets accepted. Um, I think what you want to do is find, carve out a niche within your space of whatever you do, whatever your expertise, where... You know, you you write your regular grants and you publish your regular um, standard publications, but part of that work you push out into the developing world or whatever disability community or whichever underserved community you're most interested in working with. And you can that way cross-subsidize even with the funding. And you can also then, you know, you have your major publications, but then you also have these other publications. And, and that usually is considered a good thing rather than a bad thing because it gives you a good PR and uh, generally universities like having that kind of PR. Um, so as long as you don't do it as the only thing, you, you, you should actually, it ends up being a benefit. So that would be the, the two ways I would recommend um, unless you wanted to be a renegade like me and kind of go all or nothing, which 
that's fine too if that's who you are <laughs> so yeah thank you you're welcome And that's it from us for today. As always, check out robohop.org for more information about TechBridge World and links to the group's own pages. And on robohop.org, you'll also find all the latest on the hottest topics and debates in robotics. The podcast will be back in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. Bridge World with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics.